Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our pick of the serious, the sublime and the surprising from across the week's stories. I'm Josie Delap, and on your menu today, the trade war as seen from China, a glimpse of the future of flight, and we remember the man who created our heroes. But we start with our cover. Our headline was staying alive. Almost everywhere in the world, the rates of suicide are declining. Our cover story asked why and what countries can do to bring them down even further. Suicide fascinates us. It is at once appalling and yet, in the darkest places in our minds, appealing. It is the most damaging sort of death. A child's suicide is a parent's worst nightmare and a parent's marks their children for life. It is a manifestation not just of individual anguish but also of a collective failure. If society is too painful to live in, perhaps we are all culpable. There is one terrible exception to the global downward trend. The suicide rate in America is up by 18% since 2000. This is not merely a tragedy, it matters politically too. The rise is largely among white, middle-aged, poorly educated men in areas that were left behind by booms and crushed by busts. Their deaths are a symptom of troubles to which some see President Donald Trump as the answer. But elsewhere, the story is more optimistic. At a global level, suicide is down by 29% since 2000. As a result, 2.8 million lives have been saved in that time, three times as many as have been killed in battle. There's no one single reason, but this shift is a sign that lifestyles are changing, giving many people both more freedom and more stability. As people move to cities and the grip of tradition loosens, women have more choice about whom they marry or live with, making life more bearable. As crises recede and employment rises, so suicide tends to ebb. And falling poverty rates among the old, which have declined faster than among other groups globally, are reckoned to have contributed to the drop in the number of elderly suicides. But governments can do a lot to help as well. Many of the 800,000 people who kill themselves each year act in haste, and more could be saved with better health services, labour market policies and curbs on booze, guns, pesticide and pills. America, in particular, could spare much pain by learning from the progress elsewhere. You can read about how many more lives can be saved and improved in this week's international section in print and online. And if you're not a subscriber already, you can go to economist.com forward slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Here on Economist Radio, our science and tech podcast, Babbage, investigated the power of data to prevent violence. In this case, a project by the London Metropolitan Police to map young people involved in or at risk of involvement with gangs. Its intentions were good, but a recent investigation has found that rather than protecting people, the gang's matrix may have put them in further danger. 
We heard from Ravi Nayak, head of public law at ITN Solicitors, and Tanya O'Carroll, who leads Amnesty International's Global Technology and Human Rights Programme, to find out what went wrong. The individuals that are on it, their data has been breached, it's been shared online, it's been shared with so many partner organisations outside the police, from health to schools, across the council to housing associations, and many of the people on it, up to about 40%, aren't actually really involved with any serious violent offending. It's not just about kind of sanctions here, it is about helping public authorities to ultimately use data. Of course you need better information sharing between agencies, between the police, between the various public services, but it has to be done in a way that has is transparent, based on human rights and has really strong oversight in place. And I think this is not about rights getting in the way of innovation. This is about rights being part of innovation. And data will have a much better impact if it's done with due respect to human rights. And you can hear the rest of our Babbage Data Special by subscribing to Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. With the G20 summit beginning on Friday, the week ahead looked at one of the key issues on the table, the trade war between America and China. Kei Jin is a professor at the London School of Economics specialising in the Chinese economy. She told us about how this battle of tariffs and words looks to ordinary people in China. Chinese now think that the advanced economies are really trying to contain China. It used to be that there was a few conservative hawkish group and contingency that thought like that, but now everybody in China thinks so. And I think this is particularly dangerous because it incites nationalisms. It gives the young people, which had a view of turning more towards the West, turning more open, becoming more open, this image that the rest of the world wants to contain China. And that is very dangerous. Over on our Money Talks podcast, meanwhile, our guest this week was Dr. Kevin Hassett, chair of the American Council of Economic Advisers. It's a sort of internal think tank within Donald Trump's administration, backing up the president's economic policy with hard research. When we asked him about the president's preoccupation with America's trade deficit, he said that tariffs alone are not the answer. A lot of the trade deficit in the U.S., is, is almost like an accounting anomaly. It's all inside the current account because what U.S. firms did under the old tax code was that they would transfer price their profits, say, to Ireland, and that would increase the income of their Irish subsidiary and increase the trade deficit because they were making it in Ireland and paying too much to the Irish subsidiary for the import into the U.S. That drove the trade deficit up, drove the income of foreign subsidiaries up. All of that happens inside the current account. And so I think that there's a lot of room to reduce the trade deficit just within the current account by eliminating that transfer pricing practice. And if you look at the tax bill that just passed, it should actually help us make a lot of progress in that regard. And you can listen to our interview with Dr. Kevin Hassett in full on the latest episode of Money Talks from Economist Radio. Back to the paper now and this week's business section, which looked at the surprising revival of a company once derided for being decidedly uncool. Segway, inventor of the self-balancing scooter of the same name beloved of tourists and traffic wardens. Set up in 1999, it languished under its initial owners, one of whom died after riding the two-wheeler off a cliff. But Segway has been rallying under the direction of Ninebot, which acquired it in April 2015 for an undisclosed sum, shortly after Segway sued it for patent infringement. The company is riding high on the renaissance of the electric scooter, where the wheels are in a more traditional configuration, safely one behind the other. 
It took Segway a decade to hit its initial 13-month target to sell 100,000 units of its original two-wheeler. In 2018, just three years into production, Segway 9Bot will sell 1 million scooters, up from sales of 600,000 last year. The firm's backers valued it at $1.5 billion in its latest funding round. Gao Lu Feng, its chief executive, thinks electric scooters may disrupt even the old bicycle because they appeal to our lazy nature. But if scooting isn't quite your style, turn to our science section, which reported on an entirely new way to travel. A team at MIT has successfully tested the first ever iron drive powered flight, the force that propelled the evil Empire's fighters in Star Wars. In a series of 10 test flights, it successfully traversed a 60-metre indoor sports track. This distance is comparable to that of the first flight, in 1903, of the powered, heavier-than-airplane built by the Wright brothers. It's the first aircraft to be powered without moving parts. It can fly silently and without direct emissions from burning fossil fuels. It works by using electrodes to ionise a gas in such a way that the resulting ions, charged particles, create thrust. One day, this could result in something that looks a bit like a saucer, which could hover silently or zip through the air. And finally, our obituary honoured a man who would have delighted in that bit of fantasy become reality. Stan Lee, creator of superheroes. He had brought Marvel Comics back from the dead, and with it, the whole industry of comics, so that far from being something cheap and childish, which your parents didn't want you to read, they became grown up too, and wildly popular, and took over Hollywood, and with it the whole of American pop culture, earning revenues in the billions and billions of dollars. Fee you! Stanley was not born with superpowers. So you would never have suspected anything of Stanley Lieber as he was growing up poor in Manhattan, with his father out of work, living on hot dogs and wandering the streets alone in summer while his friends were away at the camps his parents couldn't afford. But he could feel that inner strength stirring. It came from words. He read and read and read. What made his heroes so powerful was that they were so ordinary like Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four, a nerdy scientist who, when pitted against Doctor Doom and his robot army, could spool out into any length and shape. Or Peter Parker, just another adolescent worried about spots and girls, who, when the Green Goblin loomed, was suddenly spidey, scaling skyscrapers and running across ceilings. The X-Men, erupting in his brain in 1963, spoke for all outcasts, black, gay, disabled, who felt like mutants. If there was a villain in his story, it was the tyranny of money. He held no rights to his characters until, in 2001, he set up POW, purveyors of wonder, entertainment. Even so, he spent too much of his last years in lawsuits over percentages from TV and films. He wasn't poor, of course, just wanted his powers to be recognised. He was the most ordinary person you could imagine. And yet, through his ideas, superheroically immortal. That's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. But for more tales of everyday heroism and villainy, go to economist.com or Economist Radio on your podcast app. I'm Josie Delap, and in London, this is The Economist. The Economist. 